You're listening to a recording of the seminar Europe, Norway and the Ukraine Crisis, held at NUPI on 16 March 2022. Main speaker is Mark Leonard. Welcome to this seminar on Europe, Norway and the Ukraine Crisis. Let me remind you that this seminar is streamed, made available also on our YouTube pages or YouTube channel. Today's seminar is co-hosted with the NUPI and the Confederation of Norwegian Enterprises, NO, and Tore Myre will also act as a moderator later on. Today's speaker is a good friend of mine and colleague, Mr. Mark Leonard. It's great to have you here, Mark. Mark is the co-founder and director of the European Council of Foreign Relations. He's the host of the very good podcast uh, is a world in 30 minutes. Uh, hope, hope you listen to it. Uh, and he is the author of a recent book, The Age of Unpeace, very fitting title, uh, also dealing with a lot of topics that I think we'll touch upon in the seminar today. Mark has since uh, Brexit moved his uh, think tank uh, to uh, Berlin and set up a shop there. And uh, from there he has built an amazing network of scholars and politicians and experts with offices all over Europe. Uh, and uh, ESFR is not only a place of thinking and researching uh, about European affairs and Europe in global affairs, it's also helping to shape it, shape the policy. So I'm fortunate also to be a member of his council, so I know what he's up to. Today, uh, the topic is, of course, Putin's war in Ukraine and what it means for Europe and for Norway. Uh, last time I met with Mark, it was at the Munich Security Conference. And uh, as we were there, we could see in the eyes of the politicians from Europe and the US that they were not f scared, not fearful, but the seriousness and the... Uh, the days ahead would be demanding. They're, you could see it in their eyes. The intelligence was quite good, so they knew what was going to happen just a few days later. Now, 21 days after the invasion started, things are very much changed, I think. Russia, with its mil massive military power, has not succeeded in overtaking Ukraine, and the U Ukrainian resistance has been massive. Actually, as we speak, I think Zelensky is talking live to the US Congress. Europe and the US has demonstrated strong transatlantic unity, and we have seen a very strong European unity as well. And the tensions between East and Western Europe have just evaporated. Uh, European countries have radically changed their positions, uh, not least Germany. UK and Norway also align themselves with the EU to an extent that we have not seen before. Ursula von der Leyen in the EU and Jens Stoltenberg in NATO, like a happily married couple, uh, working together, a well-balanced division of labor. And sanctions that were previously unheard of has been implemented, not only in Europe or in the US, but uh, all, uh, in many uh, other countries as well. But it will certainly not be easy. It affects us all. Food and energy prices are rising, and close to 3 million refugees have arrived in Europe. And we, this, of course, will not only affect Europe, it will also uh, create a, probably a global food crisis and potentially spill over into political instability in many places. So, as we all know, uh, the duration and the, and the outcome of the conflict uh, is uncertain. 
but now there are news about uh, uh, progress and at least some of the negotiations. I think it was Lenin who once said there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Uh, now we had a few of these weeks that turn into decades somehow. It's great to have you, Mark, uh, to come here and to reflect on what has happened in these last few weeks or decades and what it means for the next decades and weeks. Please, Mark, floor is yours. Great, thank you very much for your lovely introduction. Um, it's, it's really great to be back here um, in one of the, the great uh, foreign policy international research centers in Europe um, to be with a friend, uh, but also to be here with, with uh, our friends from Norwegian industry, who I think are more than anyone in the heart of, of this crisis at the moment. So I'm very much looking forward to, to our discussions uh, later on. Um, Ulf um, set the, the situation uh, that we're in out very, very clearly. Um, and I, I'm going to try and take a, a step back and think a bit about both uh, where we're at at the moment, but also what this might mean going forward for, for Europe and for, for Norway. Um, though uh, I will rely very much on, on Norwegian colleagues to... to um, to, to let me know whether that makes any sense at all. Uh, but these are some, some of the ideas which uh, occurred to me when I was thinking about it. Um, let's start with the situation that we're in at the moment. And the other day I, I started looking again at a book by Elias Canetti from, um, from 1960 called Crowds and Power. And there's this incredible passage in it where he talks about paranoid autocrats who think of themselves as survivors, the ruler as survivor. And he talks about how they surround themselves with empty space so that they can see approaching danger from, from any angle. And how for the autocrat, the only truly dependable subject that they have are the people who allow themselves to be killed by them. And with each execution that the dictator orders, he accrues a new strength the idea of strength, the strength of survival. And I obviously felt quite a lot of contemporary resonance when I was reading that passage again. You know, if you look at the current incumbent of the, of the Kremlin who likes to sit alone at the end of these long white tables with huge amount of space around him, but is also thinking about space in geopolitical terms, the Lebensraum, which which Russia has and which the Russian world has. Um, and he sits there at this table issuing ultimatums, launching invasions, ordering the, the arrest or assassination of political opponents. Um, and actually, I think in a very real way, Putin has built his power through um, meeting out violence and destruction and death to, to others. A lot of the consolidation of, of his persona as the, the leader of Russia has come through, through these wars in Chechnya, in Georgia, in Ukraine, um, in Syria, and now in Ukraine again. And in that sense, his survival, because a lot of those moves were actually linked to the consolidation of his political power. So his survival literally has depended on ending the existence of, of others. 
I think it's very dangerous to overly personalise any geopolitical situation. We always do that with Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and Assad and try and make out that the big problem that we have is, is of kind of crazy, evil, uh, power-hungry men uh, in different places when there are structural forces at play, uh, play as well. But I think that this idea of, of, of survival um, is very helpful, both to understand Putin and what he's doing in Russia, but also to understand what the implications are for geopolitics more generally, because paradoxically, Putin's uh, actions have also triggered the survival instincts of other people as well. So Ukraine's actor turned president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has emerged as, as the hero who literally embodies, he gives flesh to his nation's existential struggle. NATO has emerged from its creeping brain death that we read about uh, a couple of years ago. And the European Union, I think, has suddenly and rapidly been transformed from an inward-looking peace project into a community whose raison d'etre now is increasingly about sovereignty and about security. I was in uh, a major European capital last week speaking to a, a very senior official, and he said to me, Russia is too big and too connected to be allowed to behave like a bully that's freed of all norms. Either our response to this war puts an end to it, or our world will collapse. And what I felt when I heard his, his words is, was that the crisis that Putin has created for Europe is not only a security crisis. It is something bigger than that. It is an existential crisis. It's actually even a, a philosophical crisis. And, and that's why um, my first instinct on the 24th of February was to think about this as... as Europe's equivalent to 9-11 to, to because it is leading, you know, people said after 9-11 this will change the world. It didn't actually change the world. It changed America and America's quite big. So America, <laughs> by changing itself, had an impact on the world. But I, I think that um, I'm not sure whether the war in Ukraine is going to change the world, but it's definitely going to change Europe. I don't think Europe will be the same afterwards. And because it goes right to the heart of, of the idea of the European project, which was built around this notion that former enemies could become friends through building economic, legal, and eventually political interdependence. So even though this war from the outside looks like a, a kind of 20th century military intervention with the tanks kind of going across borders, it, it had immediate echoes of 68, 56, of other kind of periods. It's actually quite different from those things because this conflict isn't unfolding on the other side of an iron curtain. It involves parties that are totally bound up, not just with each other, but with ourselves as well. And the way that it's being waged isn't only with planes and with tanks, but also with sanctions, with the manipulation of supply chains, financial flows, migration, information, digital. And companies, citizens, consumers are increasingly finding themselves playing an unwitting role in this global <laughs> geopolitical event, even though they, no one's drafted them and asked them to go to the front and to fight. Lots of aspects of their everyday lives are being shaped by this geopolitical conflict. 
And even as Russian tanks and airplanes brutalize Ukrainian cities, I think we need to remember that far from preventing this conflict, the building of interdependence and connectivity was in fact one of its key causes. The origins of the tensions between Russia and Ukraine go back at least to the, sorry, between Europe and Russia over Ukraine, go back at least to the Orange Revolution, which was seen as a sort of tussle between two different ideas of Ukraine, one connected with Europe, the other connected with, with Russia. And that tussle carried on, took on an even more violent turn in the contest um, in 2013 between the idea of Ukraine signing up to Russia's Eurasian economic community or an association agreement with the, with the European Union, which in turn sort of triggered lots of domestic political struggles, the Euromaidan, the, the decision by Yanukovych to, to go into exile, and a panic in the Kremlin as they saw Ukraine slipping out of their grasp, out of their cultural community. And that, uh, it, that crisis led to President Putin's decision to annex Crimea and to start the, the war in the Donbass. And that war obviously didn't end. You know, President Putin was attacking Ukraine long before the 24th of February. Um, he, you know, over the years, as well as, you know, using little green men in, in eastern Ukraine and annexing Crimea, Putin has used every single tool at his disposal, cutting off gas, launching cyber attacks, putting pressure on Ukrainian companies, disinformation campaigns, working out what he can do within, within Ukrainian politics. And at the same time, um, the defense of Ukraine, both by Ukrainians and by the West, has also not largely been military. In fact, it, it's been using all means short of war. Um, and those means uh, are, are very similar. In the current uh, conflict, President Zelensky has been very active on social media, in the media, trying to fight disinformation, trying to shape Russian narratives about what's going on, making, do, recording messages in Russian, even urging hackers to attack Russia. Europeans haven't only been sending weapons to Ukraine, but, you know, when, as, as Uf said, uh, to what we thought of as, as kind of nuclear territory by, by sanctioning the, the Russian central bank, excluding banks from, from the SWIFT system, moving away from buying oil and gas to Russia, restricting Russia's access to technology. Karl von Clausewitz called war the, the continuation of politics by other means. But in a nuclear age, the, the price of, of war is unbearably high, even if it's no longer unimaginable. And that's why, increasingly, the other means of global politics is the manipulation of connectivity, what I, what I call connectivity uh, conflicts. Countries are, are waging um, uh, war with each other by manipulating the very things that, that link them together. So even this military conflict shows how connectivity has given people um, some reasons to compete. I talked about some of them earlier, an opportunity to fight because we are so tightly bound up together. There is no iron curtain that separates us. But also uh, a kind of whole new arsenal of weapons to, to deploy. And in my book, I, I use this metaphor to explain contemporary geopolitics. I say that it's become 
like a loveless marriage where the couple can't stand each other's company, but they can't get divorced either. And just as in a marriage, it's the things which brought the couple together in the good times that become the way that they hurt each other in the bad times. So in a marriage, it's about who gets custody of the holiday home, the pet dog, the kids. But in geopolitics, it's gas, it's supply chains, it's finance, it's the movement of people, it's the internet, it's information. It's even our responses to, to global problems. Um, and if you think about the last few years, even before uh, the war in Ukraine started, you could see a lot of these violent tools being used in, in ways which were quite shocking to Europeans who had this idea that interdependence would bring about harmony and bring people together. Just look at the, the big story before uh, Ukraine happened, COVID, and the way that we responded to that. Rather than working together to increase global supplies of vaccines, masks, and gowns, you had uh, lots of talk about vaccine uh, nationalism and mask diplomacy. 98 countries in the first days after um, the, the COVID crisis started uh, imposed export restrictions on PPE and medicines to keep their supplies in their country. Um, and they were even willing to do that within the, the European Union, breaking up the, the logic of, the, of, of, of Europe's single market. Um, when it comes to, to economics and finance, I think one of the reasons that Putin has felt so under siege by the West is the fact that his country has been under sanctions since he annexed Crimea. Um, but he's just one of many people. Sanctions have become a weapon of first resort, you know, with China targeting Japan, Russia sanctioning Turkey. The US listed over 800 entities in 2020 alone. Russia is also um, one of many countries that have used the internet to interfere in, uh, in other nations' uh, affairs. Between autumn of 2016 and spring of 2019, they were election interference attempts in 20 democracies representing 1.2 billion people. And um, even migration, you know, the ultimate sign of, of one world of people coming together across borders, um, even migrants have been turned into bullets in these new political battles. You look at what President Lukashenko did in, in Belarus, where he encouraged people to come into, into his country um, from from the Middle East, uh, only to filter them into, into Poland and Lithuania to put pressure on their governments. Uh, it wasn't actually a particularly original <laughs> move. Uh, the academic Kelly Greenhill has documented over 75 occasions in the last few decades when countries from Cuba and Morocco to Libya and Turkey have used forced migration to achieve political, military or economic goals in, in a similar way. So in my book, I kind of argue that we may be on the, the cusp of a new silent pandemic, like COVID-19, it's spreading across the planet exponentially, it's exploiting cracks in our network world, it's constantly mutating to avoid uh, our defences. But unlike the virus, which pits all of humanity against a disease, this new pandemic is being deliberately transmitted. It's not biological, but it's a set of toxic behaviours that are multiplying like a virus. The connections between people and countries are literally becoming weapons. And it is connectivity itself that gives people the opportunity to fight, the reasons to compete, the arsenal to deploy. Um, and that means that we need to think about 
the way that we live together and the way that we structure our economies and our everyday lives and our ideas about security in quite different ways. Academics who used to, to work on, on cyber issues were looking to describe this sort of grey zone in which their world was immersed, where on the one hand, um, most of the, the things that were going on didn't constitute war. And what is remarkable about today's world is even with this war in Ukraine going on, the number of people who die in armed conflicts now is, is less than the number of people who commit suicide. We've never had as little conventional warfare uh, the, as, as we have at the moment. But at the same time, you have a vast amount of violence and competition going on through the, through the system every day. And that is similar to, to what was happening in the cyber realm, where you have these kind of millions of attacks that fall short of conventional war. And they rehabilitated this sort of Anglo-Saxon word of unpeace. Um, and I think as violence spreads from the internet to trade, to, to finance, to migration and beyond, their word does come up with a perfect encapsulation of our, of our condition. It's neither um, conventional war, nor is it peace. Um, and it's uh, instead to do with a sort of unstable, crisis-prone world of perpetual competition and endless attacks between competing powers. Um, so I think that the backdrop, even to the war that we're seeing at the moment, is not the prospect of, of coming up with some sort of peace or even a new Cold War, but is in fact the emergence of this perpetual era of unpeace which is there as a result of our hyperconnectedness, And that makes it very difficult to see how even if the hot phase of this war is going to come to a close, we're going to end up with a stable geopolitical situation because no country has impermeable borders and there are thousands of points of contact which can be instrumentalized. So even after the fighting ends, Europe is going to have to be ready for a continuous disruption and disorder. And that is why... What we need to do now is not just think about what's going on in Ukraine and how we respond to that. I think we need to think a lot about ourselves and about the whole idea of security and order. And that's why I think this is a sort of philosophical crisis as well as a security one. And there's sort of four big sets of questions which I think Europeans are thinking through. And I think that Norway um, has got a very interesting and, and slightly tricky situation around each of those four questions. And I'm just going to... Uh, end by talking about those four uh, dimensions and hope we can have a, a debate late, later. The first question is really about the, the borders of the West, particularly the European Union and NATO. Where should they lie? Um, on the one hand, Putin has been quietly trying to consolidate the, the Russian sphere of influence. Belarus has long been a, a kind of autocratic country, but it used to at least have some pretense to an independent policy. That uh, has ended. It's now fully controlled and militarized by Russia. Kazakhstan has been brought to heel in a way that was unthinkable a few years ago. Although it's not voted consistently with Russia or towed the line fully in different institutions, after the CSTO intervention, it's lost some of its, its freedom. Azerbaijan concluded a bilateral military agreement with Russia before the war. Um, and many people fear that Putin is going to act aggressively towards Moldova or if there's any change in the status of Finland or Sweden that, that you could see uh, different ways of, of sort of preempting that. 
So on the one hand, there is uh, lots of probing of the borders and an attempt to consolidate spheres of influence outside of NATO and the European Union. And on the other hand, Europeans who for a long time thought borders were incredibly passe and, and ludicrous, having to think about borders in, in totally different ways. For most of, of, of my lifetime, when Europeans thought about borders, it was in the context of removing them. Um, and we became so casual about it that we were even willing to, to, to in fact change them to recognize an independent Kosovo which is often cited as a, as a precedent for, for some of the, the other border changes which are going on, wrongly in my, in my uh, mind. But um, uh, it showed a, a sort of degree of, of, uh, of relaxation about borders, which was ahistorical. Um, but now, the precise edges of the European Union and NATO uh, are suffering from, from this ambiguity that we have. There's long been a debate about who should be in and who should be out, but there's now so much more at stake. And I think the Ukraine war provides definitive proof that to be in is very different from being outside. If you're inside NATO, you are promised military protection. If you're outside, you're left to the tender mercies of the Russian military with diplomatic, moral support, maybe some weapons, some sanctions, but it's very different from being inside of the club. And I think crystallizing these distinctions is, go is probably going to result in a slightly smaller but more consolidated West. There are debates, as you know, about whether Finland and Sweden may, may join NATO. There are also going to be questions about how much tolerance people have within the club for, for hedging and for, for, for balancing, particularly relevant for countries like Hungary, Turkey, Serbia, that are all basically being put under enormous pressure now to decide which side of the, the borders they want to be on. Some Baltic leaders are saying, hang on, why do we have um, Ukraine that's this very pro-Western country outside, and yet we're tolerating um, much more pro-Russian behavior from our supposed allies within uh, the club? And uh, there's obviously also a big debate now about countries that want to join the EU but lack the qualifications for membership, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, the Western Balkans. And some European diplomats have begun once again to talk of a multi-speed Europe where countries might gain limited access to the single market, the energy union, the Green Deal. What does that mean for countries outside the EU like Norway and the UK that are going to be affected by EU sanctions, energy policy, the effects of the Green New Deal, yet have no voice or ways of influencing those debates in, 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 uh, in their formal way? It's hard to say, but I think we can say that these rules are both going to become more flexible in how they encompass outsiders, more important to their economic future, and I think outsiders are going to have to find increasingly creative ways to influence EU processes to ensure that their views are heard and their interests are represented. The second big question, I think, is whether Europe can adapt to a regional order that's based on the balance of power rather than on laws and institutions. After the end of the Cold War, we had a vision for a pan-European order with Russia, and that is now going to be replaced to one with one that is seen as being organized against Russia, with no common institutions and no trust. There's going to be a major push towards rearmament, a process that's already begun in, in Germany, 
in Denmark, where they're going to have their referendum in, in June this year, and in many other countries. And in the east of NATO, people are saying that the NATO-Russia founding act is, is dead. There's going to be a new debate about military bases, about nuclear weapons. And I think it's quite likely that European attention is going, and resources probably as well, is going to be diverted away from global multilateral engagement towards territorial defence. And as security spans everything from nuclear weapons to supply chains, and as the USA tries to reduce its exposure to Europe, I think the role of the European Union as a security actor is increasingly going to come to the fore. What's that going to mean for Norway? The big question, I think, is, is whether the EU as a security and defence actor is going to be willing to open itself up more to, to third countries like the UK and Norway. And if it does, um, you know, whether they'll join, whether they want to be part of it. And if not, I think it's likely we're going to have more of a trend towards flexible coalitions of the winning, like the Joint Expeditionary Force, where Norway already plays a role. Um, and maybe a European security system that becomes more based around minilateralism and bilateral and other relations rather than these, these pan-European institutions. Um, the third big question, I think, is, is whether Europe has a political basis for building economic and societal resilience. In connectivity wars, conflicts between interdependent powers, the key to success is, is about patience and the capacity to endure pain. And while there's currently a lot of public support for sanctions, there are questions about how long this will last if oil and gas and electricity prices continue to soar, if the continent is plagued by recession. I think after creating a massive recovery fund to prevent COVID-19 from ripping the EU apart, EU institutions are now thinking about new solidarity mechanisms to help consumers cope with soaring energy prices and other knock-on effects from sanctions. Um, one way or another, I think Europe is going to deliberately, in a way that it hasn't done before, go about restructuring its energy markets, its supply chains, its finances, and this is going to have massive global implications. The crisis is going to accelerate the decoupling of the Russian and the European economies. We've heard about decoupling before. There's lots of talk about decoupling between the US and China during the Trump administration. But interestingly, um, the economic ties, though there was decoupling in some areas, the overall volume of economic uh, relations between China and the US actually grew during the Trump years rather than uh, reduced. I don't think that's going to happen with Russia and, and, uh, and, and, and Europe. Um, it's both the ways that formal sanctions are, are going to lead to a two-tier financial system and uh, drive uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of quite fundamental changes into the way that we organise our, um, our economies. But in parallel with that, there are all the questions uh, around informal divestments. Fiona Hill gave a very interesting interview the other day about the, the whole new debate about ESG where Russia is being cast as, a, as, a, as an illegitimate site for foreign direct investment, not just for consumer-facing brands, but for an incredibly wide range of companies across different sectors. And even in the energy sphere, which is the, the area of greatest European interdependence with Russia, we're seeing a much more rapid decoupling than anybody thought could be possible. 
Europe obviously can't free itself from Russian gas immediately, but even since the crisis began just three weeks ago, Italian dependence on Russian gas has gone from 43% of total usage to 29%. They expect it to be down to 12 to 15% by the end of the year. A report from Bruegel estimates that with a 10 to 15% reduction in consumption and a lot of spending on expensive reserves in the current year, the EU could actually survive next winter without any Russian gas. If the political consensus around isolating Russia continues, it seems that Europeans could wean themselves away from Russian energy dependence in less than five years, as compared to the 10 to 15 years that most experts would have predicted before the crisis. And in the near term, this is going to slow down Europe's transition from, uh, to renewable energy as, as European governments seek to, to fill the immediate gaps with whatever fossil fuels they can get hold of, including uh, coal. Um, I think that's not just essential for security reasons. It might also be reinforced by a populist backlash against um, zero, uh, net zero policies in different countries. In the UK, something very interesting happened uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks where Nigel Farage, who the, the, was the biggest champion of the Brexit referendum, has, has launched a new campaign and a new campaigning organisation calling for a, a new referendum, this time not on British membership with the European Union, but on the British decision to, to reach a net zero target, and he wants to, to remove that. And I think that what you could find in lots of different countries is that populist parties that cast themselves as being in favour of freedom and independence have moved from wanting to free people from the European Union to then wanting to free people from lockdowns and from, from the repression of COVID to discover anti-net zero policies as the new frontier of freedom. And um, we saw with the Gilets Jaunes how easy it is to lose control of the narrative around these issues. So I suspect that that could become quite an important part of our politics. Anyway, um, in the longer term, however, I think the new national security imperative and the increased price of fossil fuels is going to spur more and faster investment in renewable fuels and new technologies, which could uh, eventually allow Europe to complete this transition that, that we were talking about. Given Russia's behaviour at the moment, this effort at economic isolation could last for, for, for years or even decades. As we've seen with the Iran sanctions, it's very hard to switch the investment back on again when governments have set and trained a process of decoupling. And it might be that, as with the temporary end of the junta in Myanmar, it takes a dramatic political change for, for the space for economic contact to open up again once it's become as toxic as it is becoming now. The last and fourth big question, which I'll end on, is, is whether um, Europe uh, is part of a regional order or a global one. Until a few weeks ago, Europe was seen as a geopolitical sideshow to the defining contest of the 21st century, which was the battle to control the Indo-Pacific. But the re-emergence of war in the European continent, coupled with the tightening partnership between Beijing and Moscow, is recreating a Eurasian core to geopolitics. You don't have to believe in the, the strategist Halford Mackinder's descriptions of, of the world island to see the linkage between Russia and China as becoming both inevitable and more structural to our geopolitics. People used to talk about the relationship between Moscow and Beijing as an axis of convenience, and they underestimated how much strategic content, content there was to it. Um, it's true, they're very different. One's a rising power, the other's declining. One consumes hydrocarbons, the other produces them. 
And there are lots of technical limits to how far China is going to be able to bail Russia out, whether the Chinese chips payment system can replace SWIFT, whether Chinese banks are going to be willing to, to, to risk secondary sanctions from the US, whether there's, initial, whether there's sufficient gas infrastructure to really connect the different countries. But I think um, there are structural reasons why they're both drawn together. Both countries have, are, are uncomfortable uh, being asked to be responsible stakeholders of a system that they didn't create. They don't like the way that we've revised the rules of the global order, that we've turned many things that they thought of as global public goods into instruments of Western power. Um, and um, I think the, that relationship is going to become less and less an axis of convenience and more and more a strategic partnership, which is one of the things that China is, I think, trying to, to, to do anyway as it uh, comes to terms with its friendless rise and tries to think about having more structured political relationships with other players. And as those two countries are forced together, partly as a result of our policies, the West is also going to have to work out how to reconcile its, its different approaches. And I think we're going to see NATO linking up its alliance much more with Asian democracies and coordinating policy and even force dispositions across these two major theatres in our age of unpeace. But the balance between those theatres is going to be, have to be quite carefully negotiated because Russia, though important, is, is relatively marginal to the geopolitical future of, of the US. And I think that though it's very, very difficult to, to see um, Joe Biden uh, wanting to sign up to a Yalta II or to, 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 to de-escalate. Um, um, it's, it's, it's maybe uh, difficult to have the same confidence that some of his successors will want to be as bogged down in, in Russia and in European security um, as the U.S. is going to have to be for the, for the next few years. Um, I, I think the current U.S. administration might actually be the last one that sees itself as a European power, even if it's as a part-time one that wants to further reduce its presence in Europe. And I think that that is one of the big questions for Europe, whether it can actually start to carry the major burden of conventional defense itself as a way of consolidating the alliance and keeping the U.S. bound in to, 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 to European security. Um, Anyway, uh, th those are, I think, some quite big uh, questions um, uh, for us to, to grapple with. Many observers have pointed out that Putin, with his historical fantasies and fears of encirclement, is living in a different world. But I think that our fates are totally bound up uh, with his. So it doesn't really matter what world or time period Putin thinks he's living in, as long as he is in the Kremlin um, and maybe even after his departure, Europe is going to feel that its future and its ideas about its security are uh, threatened. And what we're going to see over the next period of time, through the four questions and many others that, that I kind of laid out, are European leaders trying to reconcile the world that they want to live in with the world that Putin has foisted on them. And some people will say that this was always inevitable, that the progress we had towards a rule-based, ecologically conscious world was always kind of illusory. But I personally think that the pooling of sovereignty amongst Europeans, the development of supranational regulatory regimes, cooperation on technology, environmental protection, health, represent huge advances in our civilization. Um, 
geopolitics, I think, in Eurasia has become a, a competition for survival. And I think the ultimate question for us is how to maintain the values of this Kantian perpetual peace within the EU and within the European, uh, the Western part of Europe anyway, whilst also defending ourselves from threats in the jungle outside. And I think that finding a place for itself within this revolutionary situation is going to be quite challenging for, for Norway. There are going to be lots of practical questions you're going to be asked for more gas, you're going to be asked for military assistance, questions to do with refugees, defence spending. But I think some of the biggest changes might be political and institutional for you, where Norway risks being left out of debates about the future of our continent, being offered things on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. And just as Germany and Denmark or Sweden or Finland are going to have to radically rethink some of their European and defence policies, I think it might also be important for Norway to have some of these big existential debates and to rethink some of your assumptions on everything from defence to sanctions and maybe even eventually to the idea of, of EU membership. It could, after all, become a matter of survival. Thank you. comments also how this Ukraine crisis looks from Norway. Um, I, I sketched down just four, four brief points uh, and I think it adds a bit to what you said there Marcus. So the first, uh, first point is that I think the Ukraine crisis has made Norwegians much more European in the sense that uh, we recognize the, the shared values that we have with the other European countries, made Norwegians more proud of those values that we share and also uh, made people in Norway more scared of losing those values uh, or the properties of our society. So in that sense, I think it has been a very much of a European awakening. Uh, and then there, there are three issues I think will, and you touched upon it towards the end, Mark, would be, I think, very radical changes for Norway in its foreign policy. The, f uh, the first is that it's, uh, is of course, linked to Russia, and uh, we border Russia, and it affects our relationship with Russia. Uh, the second aspect relates to a very two very important aspects of Norway's international relations that are not typically seen as Norwegian foreign policy, energy and finance. And then, uh, thirdly, it relates to the changing nature of the uh, or the, the potentially changing geopolitical or security landscape in our region, uh, Sweden, Finland, NATO. Okay, so uh, just a few brief words about each of these three points. Uh, in the high north, as you know, uh, the key element in Norway's relationship with Russia has been to balance between deterrence and assurance. So military uh, presence, but at the same time, strong diplomatic economic cooperation and people-to-people -people cooperation in order to ease tensions. Self-imposed uh, restrictions on exercises and uh, etc. Uh, now we are in a situation where uh, Russia is diplomatically, economically and institutionally isolated. This kind of cooperation is no longer possible at the same time. Arctic Council has been temporarily suspended. Uh, academic cooperation, institutional academic cooperation, has been suspended. 
uh, it's not possible to fly. <laughs> Communication across borders is reduced. Uh, economic uh, ties and linkages, we don't know how this will happen, but uh, 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 everything, trade, economic activity across the border will be affected. Um, and of course, uh, at the same time, we will see intensification of military presence. More increased defense spending, more military presence, more exercising, more military readiness. Um, I, we should be, of course, very cautious about undermining what we have achieved. But at the same time, we should be at least prepare ourselves for many different possible outcomes. So that's the first point. The second, the two important aspects, I think, of Norway's international relations are not seen as part of Norwegian foreign policy, not instruments in Norwegian foreign policy. And that is the first is energy. Energy is managed by the Norwegian Ministry of oil and gas and it's uh, energy and it's not uh, something that uh, foreign ministry is do doing anything about. And this crisis has made it clear to everyone, I think, that the strategic importance of Norway for European security, the, uh, the so-called repower EU program, is about, as uh, Mark said, about getting out of Russian gas as quickly as possible. But for Norway, this is very demanding. On the one hand, you can expect increased demand for Norwegian, Russian, uh, Norwegian oil and gas. At the same time, a more rapid transition into green energy. Uh, we should expect uh, new discussion in Norway about the rate of production, the development of new fields, etc. So it will be an important addition to the, to the European discussion on uh, green transition and energy. Link, linking it to security and, uh, and uh, the European position of Norway. And this brings me to the government pension fund. Uh, also not an <coughs> instrument, of course, in Norwegian foreign policy. <coughs> this has made evident for all the huge geopolitical risks that the fund is exposed to. Uh, as Norway has become a large global investor, we have transferred the risk from being from oil price to financial markets. And 25% of the government budget is actually from, coming from the return of investments of the government pension fund. Uh, and now we see that states are ready to use finance and economic tools for achieving geopolitical interests, not only in sanctions, uh, but also the private business, kind of the cancel movement, the ESG, as you said, but also issues related to the freeze of central bank assets, and also using um, international payment system, the SWIFT, etc., as a weapon. So these developments might trigger all kinds of changes to the financial markets and to the structure of markets. Um, also likely to affect how and to what extent political risk is taken into account when investing, I think, for Norway. So this is really big. Yeah, and uh, last but not least, it changes the geopolitical outlook in our region. Obviously, it makes uh, the first point is, of course, Sweden and Finland. They're really considering rethinking their security relationship with the US, uh, bilateral ties, but also relationship with NATO. Uh, we don't know yet what will happen, uh, but there are serious discussions uh, and uh, changes going on. And also, you see, 
a radical uh, change, for instance, in uh, the public opinion in Finland, from around 23%, used to say no, uh, yes to NATO membership, to 55% who favors NATO membership now. Uh, Denmark, as you said, has called for a referendum on their exceptions. Uh, uh, for uh, staying out of the defense and security cooperation. And for Norway, and, and this is my final point, uh, I don't think all people in Norway know that Norway's relationship with the EU is not covering security and defense cooperation. The EA agreement is not covering these aspects. Uh, and uh, of course, we in Norway cooperate a lot with the EU in the security and defense, but we do that through a patchwork of different agreements, some formal, some informal, some voluntary basis, some have some legal obligations, etc. Uh, I see some people here who know much more about the <laughs> these agreements. But I think they have, uh, they have been added in an incremental fashion, and they are not really up to date to meet this global Europe and this the whole agenda that uh, Mark uh, brought up. and and. Um, and uh, of course, it really raises fundamental questions about uh, uh, whether it, it can be, as it has been before, rather fruitful to be in this borderland between inside and outside. So, uh, so, so taken together, the Ukraine crisis has triggered, I think, three very important elements in Norwegian foreign policy or relationship with Russia and the High North, the link between energy and finance and uh, this, uh, this link to foreign policy. And thirdly, the regional dynamics uh, related to mode of association to EU and NATO. None of these three things are completely new. Uh, many of us have seen it coming somehow uh, for quite some time. But now they have taken on much more urgency and much more need for rethinking. Together, I think they add up to a very d uh, deep and serious, some deep and serious challenges but also interesting opportunities for Norwegian uh, foreign security policy. Will it translate into political action? Well, we'll see how the discussion today goes. <laughs> uh, thank you. Now, uh, Tore Myra will act as the moderator, and then, uh, and then uh, I hope to, to all of you can enjoy the debate. Thank you so much. <coughs> thank you very much. Uh, Ulf and also Mark, uh, I think you've given, both of you given a really uh, big overview of a big picture. Uh, and uh, pr what probably the, the war in Ukraine shows us is that it really has speeds, it speeds up some development that I think you as researchers have been watching and trying to explain for a long time. And now we see this really, uh, as you said, it changes things overnight, basically. Things, developments that take decades. And that means that we are in a completely new situation. And uh, the, the challenge to the politicians that you came is, is, is one, but for us representing also the business community, this is a very challenging situation for our companies. And, um, and that's why we also in NHO are very happy to, to co-host this, because 
we know that many companies are now grappling with these questions. And we have some of them here today, so I would also like to, to challenge maybe, I see Equinor, uh, I see Telenor, uh, who are global players trying to, uh, the Ship Owners Association, trying to, uh, to maneuver in this really disturbing uh, situation. I would maybe, and so please I invite uh, the audience to, uh, to come up with uh, the questions. Also to the, our viewers uh, online, uh, please uh, post questions if you have any or comments. But I would like to maybe start off with, um, uh, with the, I think the whole approach of your book is um, the connectivity and then the connectivity wars, and it's in a way a different, you put it together uh, explaining the interconnectedness that we have had. And from business, we have had now decades of prosperity with free trade, uh, and an economy has been booming, and we work together. And then we have now over the last uh, years seen a politicization of trade, um, the sanctions, uh, uh, strategic autonomy discussion. So how should companies understand this new situation, Mark? You know, um, I think what's happened since 2008 is that people have got a, a different sense of... Um, what globalization means for them. I mean, globalization always created winners and losers and created tensions and there were asymmetries in the system. And even though Tom Friedman wrote this famous book about how the world is flat, um, what we know about networks is that they're very unflat. <laughs> and you have uh, both an incredible concentration of power as well as a diffusion of power. Um, and um, until 2008, most people thought that globalization was just a good thing, that it was empowering, that it was convenient, and we've all benefited in lots of different ways, and also thought that the state would recede and that increasingly it would just be there to make sure that you could have competition and that consumer rights could be protected, uh, but that markets would kind of take care of the rest and that the freer the markets were, the better off we'd all be. And then Lehman Brothers collapses and you, it's like the light in the room changes and you suddenly see a lot of things that were there before but which were much less clear. So in American politics, it, people became very conscious of the fact that actually a lot of people's wages, even though there'd been an aggregate gain as a result of globalization, the, the, the benefits hadn't been spread very evenly <laughs> and a large number of people had not seen their standard of living rising they at best been stagnating sometimes even moving backwards in relative terms they could see other people doing better than them um and also our sphere of reference had been gradually changing as a result of connectivity and globalization when i was growing up we used to compare ourselves mainly to like our neighbors and people who live near us or maybe our parents or our grandparents but what happens now because of the internet and because of social media is everyone can compare themselves to the most well-off and privileged people 
in the world and sometimes not even real versions of their lives through Instagram and other things. It's, it's often kind of fake versions of their lives. So therefore, they, there is this kind of widespread sense of grievance and of people missing out and of envy, which has become a really potent political force. So, anyway, so I think our sense of ourselves and the internal politics has been much more focused on the winners and losers and on the problems of connectivity. Um, and that then leads to demands for governments to get involved and to, to rectify these, these problems. And to, uh, but also it creates a grievance not just within the societies, but also against the outside world. And that's why the sort of leitmotif of politics for the last few years has very much been about taking back control, pushing back on interdependence, whether it's Trump or Brexit or you know, uh, different parties in different places. A lot of the problems which have been identified are problems to do with connectivity. It's people coming and taking our, uh, our jobs domestically. It's the jobs going and being exported overseas. It's inequality kind of seeping in. It's security risks coming in through these connections. So we've had a very different sort of public debate about it. And now, uh, and then the other thing that's been happening is that governments who... Uh, are particularly scared of their people under these kind of reactions and also much more worried about sending troops and using other kind of ways of projecting power either because they're scared of, of a sort of conventional war between China and the US or, or because they didn't like the blowback which they got from sending people to Iraq and different places. So there's been a, sort of cre a lot of creativity about finding other ways of exercising power and people have discovered in an incremental way, how this hyper-network world lends itself towards a whole new arsenal of, of, of kind of weapons. And I think that's one of the things which in America started in a big way after 9-11 when people were looking at ways of going after Osama bin Laden. And, um, and then they discovered that you could use the same tips not just against people but against whole countries. So they did it on North Korea and they did it on Iran. And now we're doing it against a G20 country in Russia, um, and everyone else is trying it out as well. So you're seeing um, all of these different things coming together, which is, but the, the, the net result of it is that people are more aware of the losers from, from connectivity and globalization. They're more uh, uh, conscious of how they're doing compared to other people. And COVID was like a massive, uh, uh, case of that where every day you had these daily charts which showed whether your country was doing well or badly compared to other players so you get this kind of sense of envy and competition being kind of reinforced by the by by the sort of connectivities and then you've got these different threats coming into your countries different opportunities to push back on those threats and then different weapons so all of these things are loading up this infrastructure of globalization with a lot of political symbolism and uh, and and, uh, and and kind of anger and, and demands for action, but also um, meaning that things which we thought of before as being largely economic are being repurposed as political and geopolitical, geopolitical. And I don't see that that's going to end. I think that's, if anything, going to sort of carry on growing. And it means that for companies. Um, you all have to become geopolitical experts. Before, it was like maybe true for Equinor and for, for, for global financial institutions that they were worried about, about geopolitical risk. But now, you know, everybody is potentially uh, going 
going to be, you know, whether you're a kind of yogurt manufacturer or uh, you don't have to be kind of working at high-end military technologies or trying to get um, natural resources out of the ground in unstable places. Everybody finds that there is a geopolitical and a political aspect to, 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 to their work. And that is quite a different world and is, I think, going to lead to, to quite different choices being made. In Brussels, for the last few years, they've been talking about going from just-in-time supply chains to just-in-case. Um, so it's going to be less efficient. There's going to be more redundancies built in. We're going to have, have to find ways of kind of hedging about it. And people are going to look at the structure of relationships to see whether you have other options and you're able to hedge against different things rather than just looking at the price points. So uh, I think that is, uh, doesn't really make it easier for the companies to maneuver in what, what you're saying. But, but uh, Ulf, um, uh, also a comment to that, but I would also like to challenge Keir uh, if you would like to come in on that in, from Equinor's uh, point of view, how to maneuver in this landscape. Just very briefly, I think that it's, it's, for me it's a bit unclear what Mark is saying on, uh, <laughs> on the connectedness. Obviously, the connectivity is creating some vulnerabilities. But at the same time, I think for small countries uh, in particular, kind of having the benefit of having access to a market is really is fantastic somehow. Uh, Arne Melker, my colleague down there, he has studied that. Without access to global markets, we would not have been able to cope with the COVID, of course. Uh, medical gear, medical equipment, uh, this international science cooperation, etc. Of course, this is extremely important. And, and uh, uh, for Norway, we have also benefited a lot of selling stuff to the market and importing. We cannot produce so many things in Norway. So, uh, so, uh, so we are faced with a kind of liberal dilemma in the sense that we want to have a uh, open society, open economy, but at the same time we want to take kind of legitimate security concerns into account, building resilience, looking into value chains, etc. And, and there's this trade-off, we, because we don't want to end up in a world of protectionism where complete disintegration of value chains and economies. That would be very unfortunate and very costly, and I think everyone would lose out on that. So, uh, so for me, I, I guess you agree on this, uh, but I see, that of course, the connectedness and connectivity creates some difficulties and challenges, but at the same time, we should be careful of, of driving down to a kind of world of disconnectedness. Uh, so the, the world is not flat anymore, it's bumpy, <laughs> yeah. but it's still possible to, to do trade. Uh, my feeling is that, that what we're moving towards is a, a, a more reflexive um, attitude towards connection. So, uh, you know, it's unquestionably true that we're vastly richer in the aggregate. We're, we've got new ideas and technologies and things that which were just unthinkable if you didn't have those connections. But at the same time, um, we're now more aware of the downside and we're seeing it as a double-edged sword. And once you become aware of it, then you can start doing something about it. So you can you can maybe insure yourself, pay a little bit more, make sure that it's not just Russian gas. Because my goal is not that we don't consume Russian gas. My goal is that we put ourselves in a position where we can... Yeah, you're not vulnerable. You can buy Russian gas if you want to, but there are other alternatives. 
and that Russia can't use it as a tool against you. And, you know, in very specific circumstances that we're at the moment, it's probably best not to buy Russian gas because you don't want to fund their war effort if you can help it. But typically, um, it, it's better if you, can, if you can put yourself in a position. But if you're Poland or Estonia, you don't have that much choice it's not like you can stop buying russian gas and start buying norwegian gas uh, overnight and i think that's what we're sort of learning about is that you know ultimately the essence of sovereignty is about choice and having a chance to choose and you don't want to put yourself in a in a kind of toxic relationship where you don't have any other options and where you can get bullied by different players and you know equally we're thinking differently about trade relationships. We're not just thinking about, you know, is it good for business? We're trying to think through, and some countries have done that anyway. In the Nordic world, you have this kind of really interesting paradox. On the one hand, your economies are super connected to the rest of the world. At the same time, you have big welfare states which allow the society to be much more resilient. And in fact, that's I think that's essential for to, to keep the openness. If you didn't have the resilience, the societal resilience, it'll be much harder to keep consent in a democracy for openness. I think that's a lesson that other countries are, are sort of having to learn. It's a bit of a paradox in a way. The more open you are, the more helpful it is to have a kind of welfare state to, 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 to deal with the problems of it. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board. We're thinking differently about immigration, thinking differently about how we manage our data, and we're thinking about these relationships in a more... But my goal ultimately is to try and keep the world open. But I think you can only do that if people feel that we're somehow in control over what's going on and that connectivity is being managed rather than it being sort of unmanaged and that we're going to be ravaged by things that come down over which we have little purchase. And that's in a way where the European Union comes in as well because in the past the EU has been about removing barriers and creating um, as little friction as possible. And now the European Union is being reinvented as a space which can give you back control and sovereignty. And that's, I think, where the whole debate about European sovereignty comes from, is the sense that, that maybe the only way that you can be in control is if you work with people who, are kind of, who have similar interests and similar values and similar priorities, but who are big enough to take on Facebook or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. So I think this is a good time to bring in Geir. Uh, you probably need um, a microphone, uh, Osman. Uh, how? Because I think the key word here is how to manage this whole uh, blurred situation of interconnectivity and, uh, and, and challenges, and both from the government side, but also from uh, the company side. Uh, so how do you how do you how do you think about this, uh, Geir? Weifenor. Well, first of all, I think we realize, uh, to quote uh, Dorothy from the uh, from the uh, the Wizard of Oz, that we are not in Kansas anymore. Um, the post Cold War era was extremely good for business. We surfed a wave of globalization into important positions across the world. That happened in our industry. It happened in other industries. What we saw and what Mark uh, pointed out was that after the Great Recession or the global financial crisis, there, were, there was more headwind for business. Business relationships became more securitized and they became more politicized. And I think what we are seeing right now is that these trends are supercharged by, by what has happened over the last uh, 
few weeks. Um, what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that uh, this will be a world without opportunities for business. But it does mean that these opportunities are going to come with much higher risk than we were used to in the past. And this goes back to the point that Mark made about risk management for companies becomes, and geopolitical risk management for companies becomes more important. We've already seen how most companies have beefed up their uh, legal staffs to deal with um, compliance issues and to deal with uh, sanctions issues. I think this is a trend that is likely to continue. So yes, there will still be opportunities, but they will come with greater risk than we were used to over the last 30 years. So the question now is, of course, what will the post-Cold post War era look like? And I think Mark's four main points about the issues we need to think about in that context are also relevant for business. And then when you take it to the Norwegian context, I think the three points made by, by Ulf underlines that we have some serious thinking to do, not just on the side of business, but also on the side of, of the Norwegian government. And, and that probably um, does something with the thinking in the boards on where to do business, uh, where to do investments. And I, I think, uh, Telenor, you, have, you are not only concerned with trade, but also with the investments uh, and, and the, the, uh, uh, the insecurity that, uh, uh, that you uh, experience uh, on that. And, and afterwards, I would like to turn to Uda to ask you about how you see the e rise of EU after your posting there, but Tom. Yeah, uh, thank you, Tore. And I'm very happy that this did not, did not happen 10 years ago, because at that, that time, Telenor had major operations in Russia and in Ukraine, uh, which ended into a, a corporate dispute with uh, uh, one of the oligarchs now sanctioned, Mikhail Friedman. And we started our exit in 2015. So we were completely out of Russia, completely out of, of Ukraine and the other countries. But of course, uh, that was in a, in a way a wise move, in particular when you see the situation today. Uh, so in a way, we're fortunate that we don't have any direct interest into, into any of those two countries, given the present situation. Uh, then again, we are in the connectivity business, and uh, globally there are 5.4 billion people who have a SIM card using for, for communications. So the whole mobile industry has a big responsibility now that the crisis hit. Uh, some of our major peers like Vodafone, you know, they have operations in Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, and so on. So obviously with the influx of, of refugees, the industry has stepped up. and. And we're providing, you know, free or zero-rated, as we call it, uh, communication f going into Ukraine. So, in a way, we've been lucky, but I think it's it's worth uh, thinking about the what will happen with the appetite for from investors uh, in companies that go into, let's call it, challenging markets. I think that has changed a lot, even before the Ukraine crisis. I think it was more, you know, it's good for businesses to be in challenging countries. That was more the sentiment like four or five years ago. I don't know whether that is still the case today, to be honest. Thank you. Thank you. So, and, and if I could go to Uda, because you have been our ambassador 
twice and probably for as long as time as, as any. And so you have seen also Brussels from the inside. And I think very clear message from both uh, Mark and Ulf is the... Uh, the rapid response and the uh, the increasingly importance of the European Union and how quickly they have got their act together in in this situation. And Ulf, you point to some of the maybe challenges that Norway then is confronted. Uh, well, Mark, you say it's a matter of survival, maybe. Uh, so, Uda, were you surprised with the response uh, from the European Union now in this Ukraine uh, crisis? First, allow me to thank Ulf and Mark uh, for framing these uh, very important issues also in a Norwegian context. And of course, the three arguments uh, or the three points made by Ulf, uh, Russia, uh, High North, uh, Energy and Finance and the Nordics have always been the main arguments against Norwegian membership in the EU. I, I just wanted to remind you about that. But we have also always uh, from Norway looked <coughs> with some hope towards a European Union which would be framed in a more flexible way, I think, a possibility for more to join on aspects of important to the countries. You have, Mark, you are saying two things. One thing is that maybe we will see a more consolidated and smaller West because it's important to stick together and be sure that we are based on the same fundamental freedoms and values and will fight if needed uh, for them. On the other hand, of course, there is this possibility and this argument which have been put forward particularly by the French, and I allow myself to take a French perspective since this was my last posting, uh, for a multi-speed Europe which actually came to an abrupt uh, end uh, when the French discovered and clearly made the point that the UK, London, the government, the prime minister was not now a a person that they could deal with a possibility for them to make uh, what they at one point framed as the European Security Council. Of course, these are long-term long -term developments, but it's, it's very interesting. And I'm not sure whether this is the opportunity, but Brexit has uh, been a main issue, a major issue here in Norway. And is this the crisis which actually could bring Europe, both the continent and the UK together again? Because uh, in particular in the areas that we are discussing now, security and defense, um, this is not something which can be done only from Brussels. They need actually more partners. Maybe you, if you would like to respond to that and maybe also elaborate a little bit on the European situation. You, you mentioned Brexit, so it could bring together again, but it could also be the opposite that because UK is out, uh, the EU can act more forcefully because the break is for, for on integration is outside and maybe is it the French model now with strategic autonomy, more politicization that is gaining ground? So I was in Paris last week, actually, and, and they're trying to reconcile in their own minds, on the one hand, this sense that it's very hard to, to leave countries like Moldova and the Balkans outside. Um, but at the same time, the European Union isn't just an, another kind of more polite name for the sphere of influence of the West is actually a, 
a political institution with a set of values and uh, which are being codified not in rules and norms and institutions and it kind of needs to work as well and it's impossible to imagine any of the countries that we're talking about joining the European Union um, for, for many years if ever um, so in its current form so th th that's why they're driven back to their favorite idea which is a, a multi-speed Europe with a noyau dur which um, is centered around France um, which is in everything and then you have kind of different relationships with other players and it's definitely true that um, our, when the crisis erupted they you know they did try and, and and you know they invited the UK along with with Jens Stoltenberg and and Tony Blinken to 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 a foreign affairs council meeting and it's the first time British minister had been <laughs> in the room for <laughs> for a while um, and there's sort of some hopes about that and in the UK we're sort of taking a temporary pause from the cultural revolution <laughs> um, which the country's been through uh, recently where the only way that Britain can be seen to be doing well is if it's doing better than the EU and if the EU is failing and there's almost been a kind of existential need in the UK for, for the EU to fail, which can, came out very strongly during COVID, which, is mirror, which mirrors the French need for the UK to fail and for Brexit to fail. So we're having a pause in this kind of zero-sum uh, question. I, I, you know, it's very early in the crisis. I don't really... But I think that, in a way, I, I think it's very difficult to see... Um, uh, a, a rapid change to the relationship between the UK and um, and the EU, uh, because ultimately these are it's a Brexit is a political project, and making Brexit fail is a political project, and <clears throat> Russia is existential and it's kind of big, but so is actually the failure of Brexit for Macron, for Charlotte, for other people the failure of Brexit is a really important political project and it was the big unifying project in the EU before, um, before the war in Ukraine. And for this government in the UK, it is a kind of, it is their raison d'etre. They redrew the map, the electoral map of the UK around it. It's a cultural project rather than a sort of economic project. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't, I, I think it's, it'd be very easy if there's a change of government in the UK and there's a Labour government that's interested in building a relationship with the European Union um, and, and Macron's not facing an immediate election where, you know, he has Eurosceptic parties that are kind of, uh, you know, it'd be easy to see a more rational and... Uh, but I, I think it's quite hard in the current circumstances. So I think the UK is going to face a lot of the same problems that Norway's facing, which is, you know, all these discussions about sanctions, about other stuff taking place without the UK in the room and Britain kind of dashing around trying to be active and to do things, but sort of being a bit disconnected from, from everything. Um, and, and, you know, we, we also suspended a quite weird political crisis around parties. And uh, the, I mean, there is a sort of there is a lot of domestic politics. The primacy of domestic politics in uh, in the UK has been absolute. So it really took quite a long time into the war, actually, 
starting for, for people to realise that they were more important things than who went to which parties in, in Downing Street in a British context. The horizons have shrunk quite a lot from, a, from in, within British politics. So, I, yeah, I'm not, that, I'm not so sure about the UK, EU things in the sort of short term. In the longer term, I think these are going to be really big and live issues. But I think there'll be a lot of energy in the short term within the EU, and that's where most of the energy is going to be. And then there'll be energy about going into rethinking what enlargement could look like and breaking it down and, and how you build relationships these places. But ironically, you know, not on a timescale that's going to be remotely useful in anything other than highly symbolic terms for, for, for Ukraine. Um, and one of the, the, the kind of big challenges as well is the fact that... Um, uh, and, and this is something people are kind of ambivalent about as well, that in the EU under Article 42.7, you have a security guarantee as well. So the idea that it's kind of risk-free to offer EU membership um, uh, in a way that it's not risk-free to offer NATO membership, I think is, is a kind of illusory idea. I think it's a different institution with different values. But what's happening, I think, increasingly is that the EU and NATO as security communities are going to become more similar to each other and more intertwined with each other. And that's something which has already happened at the level of public opinion. Interestingly, we did a poll just before the war started where we asked lots of different European countries whether they thought there'd be a war in Ukraine, whether we should come to Ukraine's defence, and who should come to Ukraine's defence. And what was most striking to me was in Poland, 80% of people said that the European Union should come to NATO's defence, and 79% of people said that NATO should come to European Union's defence. So in the minds of Poles, there's no difference between the two. Whereas we were taught that for, for Western Europeans, you know, um, it was all about European defence, and for Eastern Europeans, it was all about, about NATO and the US. But I, don't think, I think citizens are kind of beyond that. They just see these as institutions that are there to help us and to, to step up when there's a crisis, and they don't see a big dif distinction between the two. And I think that's something which is, you know, has, might actually change a bit more as the EU becomes more active on these topics. But ultimately, the bandwidth for EU, you know, in Paris, in Berlin, in, in Rome, a lot of it's going to be about these internal dynamics amongst the EU member states. And I think that's going to matter more. You're going to have more discussions in those formats than you are with London and with other players. And I think certainly there's very low levels of political trust, as you were saying earlier, which is not going to change rapidly. I'm really sorry that time is sorry. running, uh, so we only have five minutes left, uh, and, uh, and, and I apologize to those of you who wanted to ask questions, but I wanted to turn to Ulf, because um, Uda asked about Britain, but, but what about Norway in this situation? You have said something about it already, that uh, the, um, uh, the international relations is not separate anymore, but energy and finance is, is intertwined, uh, the changing geopolitical picture. And, and Norway, on the one hand, the EA is, puts us inside and outside, as you have said before, um, and it's fragile in some senses. But at the same time, we are an energy partner of, of, of the EU, especially on uh, oil and gas, but also maybe with a big potential in the renewable um, situation where EU is more focused now, not only on climate, but on energy, uh, energy security. So is that a, an opportunity for Norway? Of course it is. Uh, uh, 
but uh, I, wrote, I know it was I, a leading I, I, question. I, 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 I wrote an op-ed, uh, so I'm not too optimistic on this. Uh, I wrote an op-ed uh, last week. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if people are aware of this, but it's almost, uh, let's say, absurd political theater going on. I must say that in uh, in Norwegian political uh, landscape now. So uh, the new coalition government, uh, they wrote the Hurdal platform, and uh, basically they want to, to explore what they call the degree of maneuvering within the scope of the agreements that we have. Uh, that basically means uh, how to disintegrate and how to be less homogeneous in the interpretation of the laws. And um, last week, actually, I think it was first uh, of March, after one week after the war invasion in Ukraine, uh, the parliament discussed whether this new EA review uh, expert committee that the government is going to appoint to look into the EA agreement and Norway's agreements with the EU should uh, whether they should adjust the mandate uh, to this uh, expert group that has not yet been established. Uh, and uh, some proposals were put forward. For instance, uh, let's take into account what is happening in Europe related to Ukraine, security and defense, etc. in the EU. Let's not only look at Switzerland and the UK, but also look at uh, Nordic countries and other European countries. That proposal was rejected in the Parliament and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced that they will continue with this EA review, uh, only looking at the EA agreement with the purpose of uh, uh, exploring this room for manoeuvre. So I'm saying this because I think that you can approach the future and the challenges looking uh, at them, looking uh, straight uh, f looking at them from the face, or you can approach the world moving, looking backwards. So this review is going to look at what happened in the last 10 years. Uh, I think it's important now that we look 10 years ahead uh, into some of the ideas, etc. So I think that we, we need a bit of a uh, wake-up call. Uh, so in that sense, I think that we are in a situation a bit like Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, as you said, Ola, Ola, he, he, of course, he ran a campaign of Brexit, although he might want the uh, UK, perhaps uh, he wanted them to be, but at least he campaigned for, for leaving. And uh, so this is his political project. Although he uh, now sees himself as uh, what could have been a bit of a Churchill moment for him, in, uh, a fantastic moment for him, and it has saved him. He might have lost his job in Partygate uh, right before the Ukraine crisis. And now he's in this Baron von Moskov uh, case, right on the, the Russian money in uh, the Tory party. But, but, but I think that uh, it, it, it's, it's impossible to ask him to shore up formal ties with the EU since he has spent his campaign on, on moving out. But for Norway, we have had this going for 26 years now. No, 36 years. So I think it's time to think systematically about how to develop a relationship with Europe. So, uh, so I'm saying this because I'm very frustrated. There are opportunities going for the government to explore, to engage, to have a conversation. I'm not saying that you should advocate EU membership, but you have to address some of the challenges over time. 
and to look at not as EU membership and these agreements as the solution necessarily, but as an instrument to help to protect Norwegian interests and values, etc. So, so I said, you're not going to meet Jonas tomorrow, Jonas <laughs> Korsøre. Uh, so I think you should say to him that you should really reconsider that mandate. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you there. think he should do? I think he should uh, continue with this uh, review. Uh, committee or appoint that review committee, but uh, let's update the information on the mandate, not be stuck to what uh, was looking, uh, how they viewed things in October or September last year, but uh, update it and say, okay, what do we have in terms of uh, foreign security and defense policy? What do we see in the energy transition, climate policy? What do we see in terms of technology? How to relate to the EU, US Trade and Tech Council? Uh, how do we relate to EU as a part of a global order, as you said? All these four points that you had, and add a few of mine, and then you have a nice uh, <laughs> pitch for but him. Uh, I, don't think. I think we should probably also put Mark up with a meeting with the finance minister. <laughs> Not in terms of the fund, I think, but in terms of the party affiliation, yeah? Exactly, yeah. No, not the fund. No. Okay, uh, I think uh, we are in the middle of, of, of a terrible war, a crisis. Uh, it's always difficult to assess what is happening, but I think a very clear conclusion is that it really speeds things up the processes that we have seen for a long time is now happening much quicker and that has great uh, implications for companies, for governments, for researchers and uh, I think you have helped us understand those processes much better and, and um, of course we have to read your book, so the advertisement and thank you very much for coming Mark and thank you Ulf for co-hosting this and for your reflections and thank you very much for, for the participants both here and also on screen back uh, digitally. Thank you very much.